This is History 2311, Week 10b, The City in the 70s. Oh, what's happening, CC? They still call it the White House, but that's a temporary condition, too. Can you dig it, CC? Hey, uh, we didn't get our 40 acres and a mule, but we did get you, CC. <laughs> yeah. God bless CC and his yellow suburbs. <laughs> seminal funk collective parliament and their song chocolate city chocolate city was a slang term for cities with a majority black population clinton says we didn't get our 40 acres in a mule but we did get you cc that's a reference to the old civil war reconstruction era promise general sherman ordered that freed slaves be given small farms up to 40 acres and loaned mules by the Freedmen's Bureau. But for the most part, that land re redistribution was never carried out. So Clinton says, we didn't get our 40 acres in a mule, but we got you, meaning the city, meaning urban America. And then he references Malcolm X's famous speech, the ballot or the bullet. You don't need the bullet when you got the ballot. My topic today is the city in the 1970s and, and not the city generally, but a specific city, New York City. If we were all in class together, I would ask you right now, just how many of you have been to New York City? Those of you that have been to New York City probably didn't arrive there by LaGuardia, but in an earlier era, that probably is how you would have gotten there. The main drive to New York's LaGuardia Airport is Franklin D. Roosevelt Drive, and that, is a, that makes a symbolic intersection, Roosevelt and LaGuardia. LaGuardia Airport is named for Fiorella LaGuardia, who was the mayor of New York City from 1934 to 1945. And LaGuardia is regularly ranked not only as one of the greatest mayors of New York City, but as one of the greatest mayors of any city in American history. One key to his greatness was his close partnership with Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. LaGuardia and Roosevelt are an interesting pair. Roosevelt, of course, was a Democrat. LaGuardia was a Republican. Roosevelt was very upper crust, a genteel country gentleman from an aristocratic Dutch family, you know, that went back to back when New York was New Amsterdam. LaGuardia was a very rough and tumble kind of gritty urbanite, the son of poor Italian immigrants. But the two worked very well together. And over the years of the New Deal, New Deal agencies poured something like $1.1 billion into New York City. LaGuardia had a real knack for getting money out of Roosevelt. Roosevelt joked, every time you come into my office, Fiorella, you leave with a million dollars. 
But LaGuardia was useful to Roosevelt too, because Roosevelt used New York City as a kind of laboratory for New Deal reform. He tested out programs like the Works Progress Administration in New York City before taking them nationally. So together, the two men did a lot. They put the unemployed to work. They built parks and bridges and subways and schools. And, and even today, if you fly into LaGuardia or into JFK Airport, which used to be called Idlewild, if you ride the New York subway, if you take the Triborough Bridge or the West Side Highway, if you visit almost any of the city's parks, you are experiencing New Deal New York, the things that were built in this era. But by the 1970s, well, the New Deal was long gone and New York City was struggling. And New York in the 1970s is my topic for today. So instead of zooming in on a year like we did last time, we're going to zoom in geographically and tell one city's stories. I realize that means leaving out a lot of great stuff, but I think that by doing this, I can just give you a little bit more texture to the cultural political story I want to tell. As always, your textbook is there for the big picture stuff that I'm leaving out. As you probably know, New York City is made up of five boroughs, each of which is big enough that it could easily be a city all on its own. Manhattan, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, and Staten Island. I talked a couple of weeks ago about the great gold rush of suburbia, how Americans moved out of large cities in the decades after World War II and found homes in the new booming suburbs. Now, the outer boroughs of New York City, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, had long been enclaves of kind of the white working class, Italian-Americans, Polish-Americans, Greeks, Irish-Americans. But through the 1950s and 60s, more and more of those white working class Americans were migrating out to the outer suburbs and in the process kind of migrating into the middle class. And this was happening all over the country. People sometimes call this white flight, but that is a kind of a loaded and somewhat misleading term. It implies that white people were fleeing something like cities got bad and then whites left. But that's kind of backwards. It's probably better to say that the New Deal and the GI Bill and the general prosperity of post-war America created immense opportunity, created a gateway to a better life to the new middle class, but only really, as we've said, for white people. And so they took advantage of those opportunities and left the cities behind. For so many Americans, the road to middle class prosperity ran through suburban home ownership. And when the only people living in American cities were people who couldn't take advantage of that, that's when the cities started to decline. I talked before about the white-only housing covenants of places like Levittown. And of course, the Supreme Court ruled that those were unconstitutional way back in 1948. But that kind of discrimination did continue illegally. To take one example chosen entirely at random, in 1973, the Department of Justice sued the landlord Frederick Trump, the New York-based landlord Frederick Trump, and his 27-year-old son Donald 
for violating the Fair Housing Act. The Trumps rented certain properties to whites only and uh, also could be shown to violate black tenants' rights in a bunch of other ways. The Justice Department had actually been trying to nail Frederick Trump on this all the way since the 1950s. Now, I've shown you this graph a couple of times and talked about the changing levels of inequality in 20th century America. Besides home ownership, the other big thing that pulled millions of Americans from the working class into the middle class in the 1950s, 1960s, was the availability of secure, high-paying union jobs. I talked about the Treaty of Detroit a couple of weeks ago. But by the 1970s, the Treaty of Detroit was fraying. This was really the decade when the long period of post-war expansion and consumer prosperity started coming to an end. Part of the reason for this was the very success of the Marshall Plan and of America's Cold War efforts to invest in other countries and rebuild the economies of places like Japan and Germany. In the 1970s, for the first time in the 20th century, the United States imported more goods than it exported. Those rebuilt economies, Germany and Japan, had become serious competitors to the United States. And by 1980, nearly three quarters of the goods produced in America faced foreign competition. It doesn't really look that dramatic on this graph, but it was a meaningful shift, both in economic terms and psychologically, that the United States had become an importing nation. This graph is a little more dramatic. This shows the decline of manufacturing jobs as a percentage of the total labor force. And as you can see, it declined steadily throughout the whole second half of the century. And there's not really a crucial tipping point anywhere on this graph, but it was in the 1970s that people really noticed that corporations were closing plants and factories, especially in the big cities of the Northeast and Midwest and eliminating a lot of those well-paid union manufacturing jobs, both through automation, uh, but also by shifting production first from the Northeast to Southern and Western states that had non-union workforces and lower wages, and then eventually uh, out of the United States to other countries where wages were lower still. And we call this process deindustrialization. The effect of deindustrialization on the cities of the Northeast and the Midwest was devastating. By 1980, formerly prosperous cities like Detroit and Chicago had lost more than half the manufacturing jobs that had existed three decades earlier. And New York City was not immune to this. You might not think of New York City as an industrial city, a factory city, but it really was in the mid 20th century. And what happened in all these cities as jobs declined and also as the middle class moved out to the suburbs, the city's tax bases shriveled. Very often when people move to the suburbs, they start complaining about property taxes and they stop wanting their taxes to pay for public services in the cities they've left behind. By the middle 1970s, New York City, like many American cities, was in a kind of financial crisis. The mayor of New York, his name was Abe Beam, uh, had to go to Washington to basically beg the federal government for a bailout. But Beam was no LaGuardia and the president, uh, Gerald Ford, Ford was kind of an accidental president who came to office following the resignation of both Richard Nixon and his vice president, Spiro Agnew. Ford was no Franklin Roosevelt. 
And instead of a bailout, Beam got a lecture from Ford's Treasury Secretary, William Simon, about the perils of basically New Deal, New York liberalism. Simon said, it's your fault. You pay your workers too much. You shouldn't have rent control departments. You shouldn't subsidize public transportation and education. And all that got boiled down into this very famous headline in the New York Daily Post, Ford to City, Drop Dead. Ford and his advisors, who included uh, Chief of Staff Donald Rumsfeld and Chief Economic Advisor Alan Greenspan, both of which are names you might recognize from more recent history, Ford and his advisors had decided to make an example of New York City. The country had entered an era of slowed economic growth, uh, an age of austerity, and they were making the point that social services had to be cut back. So New York City had gone from being the showcase of New Deal liberalism to being so-called proof that generous government didn't work, proof of liberalism's failures and excesses. Now, doing this didn't win Gerald Ford many votes in New York City, but it didn't cost him many votes in the rest of the country. And that was probably a sign of things to come. To be fair, there are many ways that New York in the 1970s did reveal the failings of 20th century liberalism and the hubris of that faith in big government and big projects. Back in the New Deal days, LaGuardia's chief lieutenant in all that construction he was doing was a man named Robert Moses. Uh, not to be confused with the Bob Moses of Freedom Summer, uh, this Robert Moses, they called him the master builder of New York. And his power and ambition only increased uh, after LaGuardia retired in 1945. Moses was a city planner, basically, but he was given nearly unlimited power over both infrastructure and public housing in New York. Moses had a vision of Manhattan as a center of wealth connected directly to the far suburbs by an encircling network of freeways and parkways. Moses was kind of the inventor or the, the father of the parkway, which if you don't know what that is, if you don't know New York City well, picture the Don Valley Parkway in Toronto. A parkway is like a curving multi-lane freeway, but lined with a ribbon of green space. Uh, it's intended to be a pleasure to drive on. If you're from Toronto, I'll let you decide for yourself if the DVP is indeed a pleasure to drive on. But Moses called these parkways lungs for the city to breathe with. Moses' masterwork, his largest, biggest project was the Cross Bronx Expressway, which uh, basically took Interstate 95 and ran it right through the center of New York City, cutting right through the Bronx. The idea was that this would make it possible to get from the suburbs of New Jersey to Upper Manhattan in like 15 minutes. It was actually only one of four proposed expressways. Moses wanted to build another one right across Lower Manhattan the writer and urban activist Jane Jacobs led a successful fight to stop the Lower Manhattan Expressway, but the Bronx didn't have a political movement to fight for it. Just to connect this to Toronto again, after living in New York, Jane Jacobs moved to Toronto, and there she led the successful fight to stop the Spadina Expressway, which was going to be like a parkway or expressway running all the way down from the 401 to the waterfront along Spadina. 
Anyway, the Cross Bronx Expressway began construction in 1948 and did not finish until 1972. Mile for mile, it was the most expensive, difficult road built to that point in history. I mean, think about what they had to do. To build a freeway through an existing city, Moses had to bulldoze a seven-mile trench across hundreds of existing streets, avenues, and boulevards across a subway line, across railroads, across rapid transit lines, sewer and water mains, and thousands of people's homes. The tool for getting all those people out of the way was what was called urban renewal. The route of the Bronx Expressway ran through many of the poorest neighborhoods in the city, where most people were renters rather than owners. And so they were all given like six months to move out and something like $200 per room compensation. But where were all those displaced people going to go? 60,000 residents of the South Bronx had to be moved to build the expressway. Well, Moses had a plan for that. In my lecture on the 1920s, I mentioned the French architect Le Corbusier, uh, who rhapsodized about jazz and Manhattan skyscrapers. Back in the 1920s and 30s, Le Corbusier had a dream of what he called a ville radieuse, a radiant city. And his vision was basically a tower in a park, that is high density housing, a tall, tall apartment building or complex surrounded by idyllic green space. And to Robert Moses, this was a cost efficient solution to several problems. He would tear down old decaying slums. He would build new housing for the displaced poor. He would open up space in the urban grid. And so they bulldozed block after block of what were deemed inefficient two-family homes and small businesses in order to build much more efficient 20, 30-story towers. And if you look at housing projects built in the United States in this era, this is the shape they take, but somehow they never became the kind of green utopia that Le Corbusier imagined. First of all, they didn't build nearly as many housing units as promised, which left thousands of people squatting in heatless condemned buildings. But even when the new housing projects were built, they somehow weren't the idyllic utopias that Le Corbusier had talked about. Projects like Roberts Moore in the Bronx and Cabrini Green in Chicago were, well, they're physically ugly. They're these monotonous, ugly slabs rising out of these isolating, desolate, quote, parks. They're kind of built on a scale that just didn't prove conducive to healthy society or street life. And they were also usually cheaply built and badly maintained. There had once been a lot of optimism about public housing back in the New Deal years that better housing would somehow cure crime and infant mortality and juvenile delinquency and all these problems associated with urban slums. But in practice, many of these housing projects were just as bad, if not worse, with the, in those terms, than the lower density neighborhoods they had replaced. And they became symbols of the poverty and crime and problems that they were originally supposed to ameliorate. Housing projects like the Bronx River Houses in the Bronx, the Marcy Projects in Brooklyn, Cabrini Green in Chicago, became notorious for poverty, vandalism, gang violence, drug use, at first, I mean, the people living in them struggled along okay while they had jobs, but as unemployment rose and the city's finances got worse, cities started cutting back on crucial services like public transit, police patrols, even routine building maintenance. 
many of those green parks ended up being paved over to save on maintenance. And things like broken windows and failed lights were left for months. Apartments damaged by fires just got boarded up instead of being fixed and reoccupied. Garbage would stack up in the trash chutes. And then uh, in order to keep people from throwing garbage off their balconies, balconies got fenced in, which made these places even more like prisons. By the late 1970s, these had become very unhappy places to live. People were calling them vertical slums. They had unemployment rates of like 80 to 90%. And all this is before the epidemic of crack cocaine that would really brutally ravage American cities in the 1980s and 90s. As neighborhoods like the Bronx declined, uh, people who could move out did, and large sections of the city were increasingly vacant. One marker of urban decay in Brooklyn and especially the Bronx was the wave of arson and fire in these years. Sometimes fires were set by vandals who intended to return and like steal the plumbing systems. Sometimes they were just set by idle kids looking for something to do. Very often they were set by landlords themselves who at a certain point could make more money burning their buildings down for insurance than they could renting them. The Village Voice in 1980 said, in housing, the final stage of capitalism is arson. And sometimes fires are just accidental. But between 1972 and 1976, there were something like 30,000 fires in the South Bronx, destroying 43,000 housing units, which was like the equivalent of four buildings a week. It didn't help that the city had laid off thousands of firefighters and fire marshals. Uh, looking to save money, they had actually been advised by the Rand Institute, which is a famous Cold War military think tank, uh, which had computer models that allegedly predicted which fire stations could be closed with the least impact. But wouldn't you know it, for some reason, the computer model said to close several fire stations in the poor Black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods in the South Bronx and not the new ones in the white suburbs. And so working with limited resources, there's only so much the fire departments were going to do to try and save buildings that were vacant anyway. This quote, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning, uh, comes from game two of the 1977 World Series. During the game, uh, which was at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, a fire was raging just a few blocks away. And when the TV cameras cut to shots of the nearby fire, the famous announcer, Howard Cosell, said something along these lines. It may be a misquote, but this is the line that's become famous. New York City was cutting costs in other ways besides firefighters. In 1975, it laid off 45,000 workers including highway workers, bridge workers, toll collectors, garbage collectors, teachers, police officers. And this triggered a round of strikes, garbage strikes, teacher strikes. Uh, the city's bridge workers lifted up three of the city's drawbridges and walked off the job. The New York police did not go on strike, but they printed up this remarkable pamphlet called Fear City, a survival guide for visitors to the city of New York. And this pamphlet painted a horrifying and really distorted picture of how dangerous New York allegedly was. It talked all about crime and about cuts to police budgets and said things like, until things change, stay away from New York City if you possibly can. And in the summer of 1975, the police actually handed these out at airports to tourists, sort of to scare them away, but really to embarrass the city and get them to put more money into the police. 
Now, I don't want to paint a picture of New York in the 1970s, though, that is entirely bleak. Neighborhoods like the Bronx were in rough shape, there is no question. But it wasn't a hellscape. It wasn't an apocalypse. The majority of people living there were just doing what people everywhere do. They were toughing it out. They were making it work. They were busting their asses to make a better life for themselves and their children. And it has to be said that New York City in the 1970s had a kind of gritty glamour. I mean, in New York City today, there's actually a great deal of nostalgia for the cool, creative New York of the 1970s. The New York of Taxi Driver and Fort Apache the Bronx, sure, movies of sort of crime and urban decay, but also the New York City of Annie Hall and Saturday Night Fever. In terms of music alone, New York in the 1970s was hugely creative and influential. It was ground zero for musical styles and subcultures as diverse as disco and punk. Disco culture reached its zenith at the famous nightclub Studio 54 in the late 1970s. And at the same time, punk rock, the angry stripped down anti-disco of groups like the New York Dolls, Television and the Ramones was at its height. But from today's vantage point, quite possibly the most significant cultural invention of 1970s New York was hip hop. Hip hop culture was born in and around the Bronx, the same troubled neighborhood we've been talking about in this period, the early to mid 1970s. And like the blues, like jazz, like rock and roll, like soul, hip hop was one more gift from African-American culture to America and the world. I'm not gonna try and parse out exactly who invented what, but three of the big names in the birth of hip hop are DJ Cool Herc, Africa Bombada, and Grandmaster Flash. Herc and Flash were both immigrants actually. Cool Herc, his real name was Clive Campbell, was from Jamaica and Flash was from Barbados. Africa Bombada was a former gang leader who had secured a major truce between the black gangs of the Bronx and wanted to build a new positive movement. All three of them were DJs and all three pioneered the practice of playing two turntables at once, synchronizing and backing up the records to isolate and repeat and extend the best parts, the breaks. And basically they invented a whole new kind of music, music played not on instruments, but on records themselves, a kind of remixing without electronics. By the mid 1970s, each of these three had loyal followers and territories, not unlike the territories that used to be held like the gangs, only instead of killing each other over turf, there was this furious arms race going on of creativity and innovation. And in that they created something that is ubiquitous today. I mean, hip hop culture is world culture now, a billion dollar industry or several billion dollar industries on every continent. But it was all born in a dilapidated area of about 20 blocks in the South Bronx. Bambara was the one who most saw hip hop as a movement, as an intentional alternative to gang violence. And he always said there were four pillars of hip hop culture, DJing, MCing or rapping, b-boying or breakdancing and graffiti. And graffiti is another part of this story. The elaborate artistic graffiti of the 1970s is definitely another marker of New York City in this era. And graffiti was always a flashpoint in arguments about the Bronx, about the projects, about the city, because it was simultaneously crime and art. Did it make the city uglier or did it make the city more beautiful? 
And people took all different positions on that question. Liberals move right. Okay, now I want to reconnect this cultural story back to our political narrative. Because in the city politics of New York in the 1970s, I actually think we can find a slightly different origin story for the rise of conservatism, the new right, the Reagan right, or call it neoliberalism, uh, a different origin story than maybe the one you're familiar with. On a hot summer night in July 1977, a lot of air conditioning units and a dilapidated overstretched power grid and a lightning storm led to a 12-hour power blackout over New York City. It might seem funny to you that a blackout is a historical event. Blackouts are actually more common today than they were uh, 50 years ago. And you can blame that on higher demand, you can blame that on deregulation or crumbling infrastructure or even on climate change but they weren't that common in those days. Now, a similar blackout had happened in 1965 and it passed pretty peacefully. People remember the blackout of 1965 with lots of stories about sing-alongs and street parties and jokes about how many babies were born nine months later. But the blackout of 1977 saw widespread looting and uh, arson and lots of arrests, especially in the poorest neighborhoods of Brooklyn and the Bronx. In hip hop history, the legend is that the blackout of 77 was a key moment in the spread of hip hop because of all the wannabe DJs who stole turntables and stereo equipment that night. But in fact, the most common break-ins were of grocery stores and convenience stores and what most people stole was just food. In uh, the larger history, the blackout was an ugly moment. It was a big black eye for New York City. And the narrative that the city had turned to violence and crime as soon as the lights went out became a key part of conservative narratives about the city and a way of justifying why the welfare state had to come to an end. The police arrested thousands of people that night, more than 3,700 people, more arrests uh, on one day than any other day in New York City history. 10 times as many as had been arrested during the riots after Martin Luther King's murder in 1968. And there were fires and there was vandalism and all the rest. President Jimmy Carter came to the Bronx to tour the damage after the blackout, but he refused to give New York City disaster relief funds because he said this wasn't a natural disaster. The implication was that New Yorkers themselves were to blame. And so for the second time in the decade, uh, a different president made political hay out of telling New Yorkers to essentially drop dead. The blackout made the South Bronx famous or infamous, and it burned off what little sympathy white New York or white America might have had for its residents. The crime and the looting seemed to confirm everybody's worst suspicions about the inner city and the people who lived there. Now, I would argue that the fires and the looting were symptoms of despair and decay, but the image of poor, people, uh, especially poor Blacks and Puerto Ricans, burning their own neighborhoods, turned people against support for urban social programs and welfare, and provoked demands to get tough on crime. The New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, people in the South Bronx must not want housing or they wouldn't burn it down. Moynihan's involvement in this story is interesting. He was a Democrat. He was an advisor to Kennedy and Johnson in the 60s. And in 1965, he wrote a famous or infamous report 
called The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, although a lot of people just call it the Moynihan Report. And this report in 1965 came at a moment when the Johnson government was trying to continue civil rights progress into Johnson's war on poverty. And Moynihan said that just granting voting rights and ending desegregation was not enough, that the government had to do more than just ensuring that minority groups have the same rights as the majority, that it also had to act affirmatively to bring about equality. And in that language, you can hear the kernel of the idea of affirmative action. Moynihan argued for a guaranteed family income for all and targeted jobs and income programs for minorities. So in all those ways, it was very progressive, but much of the report focused on the state of black families, on problems of children born out of wedlock, on the quote, failure of black men to take responsibility for their children. And so even though Moynihan thought of himself as a progressive on racial issues, it really read to people uh, like he was blaming the victim. It seemed very condescending, suggested that the problems of the black family were a kind of pathology that were their own fault. Despite being a Democrat, Moynihan in the Nixon years continued to advise the White House on issues of race and urban poverty. In 1970, he wrote a memo to President Nixon that said the issue of race had been talked about too much and that it could benefit from a period of benign neglect. And Nixon said, I totally agree. Moynihan later complained that he had been misunderstood. He, he said he hadn't meant that the government should stop helping minorities. He just meant that people were talking about racial issues too much. But it was taken to mean, we've done enough. It's time to stop helping minorities. If they still have problems, it's their own fault. And so the point I want to make, the larger point I want to make, is that New York's woes and the woes of cities in general were contributing to a shift in American politics in these years, a turn to the right, a turn to conservatism. I'm gonna talk next week about Ronald Reagan and the new right of the 1980s. But one very important component of the new right of the 1980s was former 1960s liberals who moved to the right, who gave up on the left in this period. And we can really see that in New York City politics, in particular, the mayoral election of 1977. So the politics of New York City in the 1970s meant that all the major candidates for mayor were Democrats. The Republicans were not really contenders. All of the major candidates were Democrats. And in fact, they were all pretty liberal Democrats, classic New Deal liberals, or even 1960s radicals. There were four leading candidates in this election. The incumbent mayor, Abe Beam, who we've talked about, Congresswoman and feminist activist Bella Abzug, the New York Secretary of State Mario Cuomo, and Congressman Ed Koch. And as I say, they were all liberal Democrats. They were all associated with welfare, with anti-poverty programs. They were all pro-union, that kind of thing. After all the upheavals of the 1970s, Beam was not expected to win. And the favorite at the start of the election was probably Mario Cuomo. Uh, he was the father of current New York governor, Andrew Cuomo. But after the blackout of 1977, Congressman Ed Koch started gaining attention. Koch was from the Bronx, and he said that the cops had been too soft on looters and rioters during the blackout. He said the city should have called in the army or the National Guard. And after making these remarks, Koch started gaining in the polls. 
So he turned himself into the law and order candidate. Koch said New York needed to get tough on crime. He said New York should bring back the death penalty. Formerly pro-union, he now said it was time for New York City to stand up to the unions. He started talking about nuts and kooks on the left and about poverty pimps and welfare queens. Uh, he claimed that welfare recipients were actually rich, that they were driving Cadillacs and buying liquor with food stamps. A lot of these lines and phrases like welfare queens are associated with Ronald Reagan in 1980, but Ed Koch was using exactly the same language in New York in 77. Most people will tell you that the new right came out of the South or came out of Orange County, California. But here's a New York Jewish liberal who fought for civil rights, who opposed the war in Vietnam, who worked for the ACLU, who was an early champion of gay rights, turning against unions, turning against New Deal liberalism, using racial code words. Koch always said that he couldn't be racist because he was Jewish, but he used a lot of the same kind of coded, what they call dog whistle language that Reagan would use so much in 1980. And in the end, Koch won the election handily. Not only that, in 1981, he would make history by winning both the Democratic nomination for mayor of New York and the Republican nomination for mayor, which was a sign of how much he personally had moved to the right, but also of how politics was changing. New York City would remake itself again in years to come. New York City always does. Over time, it shifted from being an industrial city, a city of factories, to a center of finance and information and entertainment, a shift that's kind of symbolized by the construction of the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, which were completed in 1973. Or, if you like, the construction of Trump Tower, which was completed in 1983. Today, many of the formerly blighted neighborhoods of the New York boroughs, certainly Brooklyn, and, and to an increasing extent, the Bronx as well, have been remade by gentrification. Gentrification is what we call it when wealthy people move back into poor urban areas and the money they bring improves housing, attracts new business, but also raises rents and displaces the residents of those neighborhoods. And many formerly down and out neighborhoods around New York are unrecognizable today. It's been much harder for smaller industrial cities, places like Detroit, say, to make that pivot. When he was running for president in 2016, Donald Trump said, our inner cities are a disaster. You get shot walking to the store. They have no education. They have no jobs. Now, as usual for Trump, he didn't specify who they were, but clearly his they was racial. And it's an artifact of the history I talked about today that words like urban, city, street have all become kind of coded terms for non-white Americans. The thing about Trump saying in 2016, our inner cities are a disaster, is that Trump grew up in the New York of the 1970s. And that's the picture he carries in his head of American cities. But today, big cities in America are actually safer than they have been in decades. New York in 2018 had the least violent crime, the lowest murder rate, not just per capita, but in absolute numbers since the 1940s. Big cities are also wealthier today than they have been in years, thanks to the seemingly endless real estate boom. The average cost of an apartment in Manhattan is now uh, above $1.5 million. This is an apartment, not a house. 
Nobody is going to burn those buildings down for the insurance. Of course, this produces different problems, the problems of inequality and wealth disparity and homelessness and housing precarity as rents and property values grow farther and farther and farther out of reach. But New York has really been transformed in the last 40, 50 years and with it, the country. And my reason for focusing on New York City in this lecture, at the cost, I know, of lots of other great 1970s stories is to challenge the kind of weird and, and wholly incorrect idea that I think lurks in American culture, that cities like New York are somehow not the real America, that they are less American than a farm in the Midwest. New York and cities like it are absolutely the real America, a city of immigrants, a city of diverse origins and faith together in a free and open society. And the success or failure of big cities is in a lot of ways, the success or failure of the American experiment. Thanks very much for watching. And when they come to march on you, tell them to make sure they got their James Brown pants. And don't be surprised if Ali is in the White House. And Reverend Ike, Secretary of the Treasury. Richard Pryor, Minister of Education. Stevie Wonder, Secretary of Fine Arts. And Miss Aretha Franklin, the First Lady. Are you out there, CC? A chocolate city is no dream. It's my piece of the rock. And I dig you, CC. God bless Chocolate City and its vanilla suburbs. Can y'all get to that? Yeah, yeah.